Thank you, choir, and good morning, everyone. Great to open God's Word with you again this weekend and to hear from the Lord and to uh, seek to apply God's Word and understand who we are and who God is and to leave here with a refreshed sense of, uh, of what it means to live by faith and to love Him. I want to begin uh, by reading a list of names, and this is a little bit of a puzzle for you. I wonder, I'm going to read this list of names, and you tell me if you can uh, make the connection. What do these people all have in common? Jack Kevorkian, William Wilberforce, Terry Schiavo, John Wayne Gacy, Stalin, Martin Luther King, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Florence Nightingale, and Pastor Gary Butler. Now, the discerning amongst us, perhaps you're on, you're, you're, uh, you're sniffing out my little puzzle here. And maybe you are if you realize what we are studying and what we have been learning about as we've been doing this series on the Ten Commandments, and specifically as we have the last, last weekend and now this weekend talked about the sixth command, thou shalt not murder. What do all of these names have in common? They all are famous or notorious. Uh, they are either criminal or inspirational as it relates to the sixth command either by fulfilling it in terms of their greatness or by violating it in terms of the greatness of their sin. All of them are defined by the sixth command. Take William Wilberforce as an example, and I'm going to use him because last fall we did a biographical message on William Wilberforce. And just to refresh your memory, Wilberforce was born in the middle 1700s. He was born into some wealth and went off to college and while he was in college, he thought, you know what? I think I'd like to be a part of a, a parliament. This is in Britain. This is when Britain was the world power, the superpower. And so he runs for parliament at age 21 and wins. So he's like a junior in college and he's a member of Congress. Imagine that. And that was, that was Wilberforce. I mean, he just was, a, he was like a force of nature kind of guy. When he was 24 years old, something very dramatic happened in his life. He became a Christian. God worked in his life. He called it the great change. And at age 26, he wrote a personal life vision statement uh, that goes as follow, God follows. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And by manners there, he doesn't mean you know putting your pinky up when you drink tea. He's talking about... Uh, the, the manner of life, the condition of society, which at that time was deplorable. In London, you know, like one out of four women in the whole city were prostitutes. And just the streets, the conditions of life on the streets and, and uh, the, uh, uh, the way that children were treated and how many street children there were and all of that, it just was totally depressing to him. And one of the big things for him and what he is most famous for was his opposition and a lifelong battle that he made against the British slave trade and the uh, stealing of Africans from Africa and the uh, selling of them in the West Indies or in the Americas. And he looked at that and he said, I'm going to set my life to trying 
to abolish that. And uh, indeed, he did. In fact, by the end of his life, the British slave trade was no more. And it was a huge industry of that day. It'd almost be like, you know, automotive industry here in the United States, something like that. It, ha- it was completely eliminated. And the, the, the orphanages and the ministries that he began and, and influenced there in London, tremendous. In fact, one biographer called him the greatest social reformer in the history of the world. William Wilberforce. Now we ask the question, with him in particular, where did all of this come from? I mean, how did Wilberforce come to be the greatest social reformer in the history of the world? And the answer to that goes back to his faith. He became a Christian. That vertical relationship with God was made right by his faith in Jesus, and it brought about a heart transformation in his life. And a big part of that was the way that he looked at people. He looked at that African in that slave ship, and he didn't see property, he saw a person. And he looked at the prostitute there on the streets of London, and he didn't see a prostitute, he saw a person. And he looked at that child on the street of London, and he didn't see uh, a dirty uh, orphan in the way. He saw a person. There was a fundamental change in Wilberforce's whole perspective regarding people. He loved God, and he loved people, no matter who they were and where they were. And his life goes down. He's one of the, the great heroes of humanity in all of history. And this is the power of the Ten Commandments, to shape our perspective and our view on the whole world. And we've already talked about how the Ten Commandments don't save anybody. If we have to be saved by the Ten Commandments, we're all going to hell. We can't fulfill them uh, to be saved. Only Jesus saves, amen? Okay? Only Jesus saves. But what does he save us to? He saves us to a new life. He saves us to a new perspective. And here is where the Ten Commandments, like a map, help us know and understand how do I live in a way that pleases God? How do I morally and ethically make decisions in my life that are consistent with what His purposes are? How do I know a direction? And into that confusion, that moral confusion, steps the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Not to save us, but because we are saved. Now, last week we studied the essence of the sixth uh, command. And the sixth command is, you shall not murder. And we worked through the details of that, and I'm not going to get into all of that uh, again, other than to say the essence of it is that the reason that we're not to murder human life is that all of human life is valuable. And why is it valuable? Because life is a gift from God. Okay? It is a gift from God. And every single human life is a person, male or female, old or young, rich or poor, it doesn't matter, skin color or anything else. That human life is bearing the image of God. And because God is infinitely worthy, every reflection of Him has inherent dignity and worth. And when I do violence against an image bearer of God, I am in actuality doing violence against the one whose image they bear. And then we looked at the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus had to say, where he takes the sixth command and says, You think you're holy and righteous because you don't pull the trigger on somebody? 
What about your hearts? And what are in, what is in your heart? Anger, hatred, malice. He said, these are the things. These are the things that are displeasing to God. And so we see then that the sixth command is not just about never stabbing somebody or beating somebody up so they die or pulling the trigger, but a whole perspective of life where I am not dominated by malice and gossip and slander and anger and revenge and all of these things, but rather the Christian ethic is to love. I love God and I love my neighbor as myself. And this command helps us understand why we do that. And what it means to do that. It is a command to love and value God's image no matter where it is found. Big or small, young or old, rich or poor, red, yellow, black or white, they're all precious in his sight. As the children's song goes. Now the sixth command has really tremendous applications, especially in a society like ours, which is so sort of a culture of death and a devaluing of human life. Uh, and I want, I want to say this on, on the front end. The things that I'm going to talk about today in terms of application represent some of the most tender, some of the most devastating human experiences that we can have. And I, I stand up here, I talk about these uh, because I believe that God would have us talk about these. I am not the judge. God alone is the judge. And I just want to speak the truth in love today. And the church has to do this in these categories. Because if the church doesn't do it, who's going to do it? Say, oh, well, we'll let the government do it. They'll be the ones that will hold high the sanctity of life. How's that going? Right? Or we'll trust our educational institutions, these wealth of knowledge, the universities and all the rest. That's where human life is going to find its theological and philosophical foundation. I'm not trusting Purdue or IU to do this. Okay, If the church doesn't speak to it, then where is it going to be heard? And so I'm going to talk about a couple things I don't think I ever talked about from the pulpit. I'm going to say a few words I'm pretty sure I've never said from the pulpit. Uh, but I do this out of a desire to hold high the value of life, human life, as God has ordained it. Now, to give you an idea of where we're going with this and how broad the application of the sixth command is, let me read to you uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, this was written, I think, in the 1600s and uh, question 136 is, what are the sins forbidden by the sixth command? The answer, the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. That's all. <laughs> so, very broad application. And what I want to do is, rather than try to work through every one of the things that the Westminster divines came up with, three broad categories of application for the sixth command. And they are protect life, 
preserve life, and enjoy life. Okay? Protect life, preserve life, enjoy life. That's where we're going here. So we begin, first of all, with what it means to value human life enough to protect it. Okay? To protect it. Again, the essence of the sixth command, life is sacred. And this certainly means that in the case of murder, that this is wrong. But on the positive side, so that's the negative, don't, don't murder. The positive of this command is that if we value human life, we ought to set about ourselves to doing what we can, when we can, to protect human life, to care for it enough to do that. Now, to illustrate this, I want to show you something. I'm sure you've seen these around, around uh, town um, uh, or on the interstates. Have you seen these uh, billboards here? Let me explain what's going on here. Notice that, uh, first of all, the cows. Okay? We have cows that are painting a, a sign. Okay. Cows that are painting a sign that says, eat more chicken. Now, why would cows be encouraging people to eat more chicken? And behind that is the premise that if people are eating chicken, they're not eating cow, which is in the best interest, of course, of the cows, because the cows believe in the sanctity of cow life right? Now they could have done the billboard where the cows were writing, you know, don't kill cows. And that would be basically the same thing of what they're saying here. But no, it's a clever little twist, isn't it? What are they saying? They're saying eat more chicken. And oh, by the way, at the next exit, there's a restaurant that happens to serve it. So so come on over and eat more chicken chicken. Behind this is the, is the principle then that yes, killing cows from their perspective is, is wrong, but let's see what we can do in order to encourage people on the positive side to protect cow life. Hence, eat more chicken. Now, some of you have driven by that. You've been confused. Why would cows be writing that? Aren't you glad you came to church today? Now, you've finally been enlightened about what's going on with that. The sixth command is not simply don't murder. It also is saying an underlying ethical responsibility that we have to do what we can to protect human life. Okay? Like the cows, eat more chicken. Everywhere that it is found. So, let's talk about some application points. And probably no surprise, I want to begin by talking about abortion. Does the sixth command have something to say about abortion? Absolutely, yes, it does. We believe that abortion violates the sixth command. Why do we believe that? Because a basic theology is that wherever God's image is, it has inherent dignity and sanctity. And that means the old person, and it even means the littlest human being, which would be a fertilized egg in the womb of his or her mother. Is that the image of God? 
And that's part of the debate. When does, when does a person become a person? Is it when the egg is fertilized? Is it somehow during the pregnancy at some point? Does it only attain personhood and rights once it is outside of its mother? And from a biblical perspective, it is our belief that that fertilized egg is a person. That life begins at conception. That image-bearing begins at conception. Let me read as an example Psalm 139. This is verses 13 through 16. And David now here is, is writing uh, to God and uh, about God's perspective on him. He says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Very tender spiritual words there describing that very delicate, precious condition of a baby being formed in a mother's womb. Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. So just one chapter after the Ten Commandments, there is also a law that God gives, which says that if somebody intentionally strikes the, uh, the womb of a pregnant woman for the purpose of killing that child, and that child dies, what is the punishment for doing that? And God says the punishment for doing that is death. And the reason for that is... Life for life, this is now quoting, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Okay, Life for life. This is the biblical doctrine of retribution, where justice is served when a punishment is commensurate with the crime that has been committed. And because that child in the womb is a life, is a person, the person who destroys that life, their life shall be accounted. Now, that's Old Testament law. That's not American law, U.S. law. But we see in there what God is saying about the value of that child. It's not just tissue. It's not just molecules. There is personhood within that child. The so-called pro-choice position is that that baby that fetus is not a person, that it is uh, a conglomeration of human tissue, and that the mother's rights trump whatever perceived rights there might be for that baby. And I ask the question, why should every single person here that names the name of Jesus care about this issue? Why should we participate in this struggle. It's because of the sixth command. If we believe that that child is a person, then we have an obligation to do whatever we can to protect the life of that child. Eat more chicken, right? To do what we can. And we live in a world where, in a country where that practice has legal rights, at least currently behind it. And this is difficult. And yet, if we believe that that actually is murder, like I, I wonder how we would respond if, uh, for example, we heard that uh, two miles north of our church this week, 20 teenagers were going to be killed. 
Think of the moral outrage that we would probably have and the things that we would do to try to protect their life. And yet there's a Planned Parenthood facility a mile and a half north of our church that who knows how many children are going to be killed at that facility this week. And you see, I think what is so easy to have happen is we become numb to the ethical reality of what's going on. Like if you're my age or younger, you've never known in America where that wasn't standard operating procedure, right? I've never known, I I have no memory where abortion was not legal and could happen in any community across the country and be protected by, you know, the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. I don't even know what that's like uh, to not be the case. So it feels normal for babies to be killed, which is tragic to even say that, but that's the numbing effect that it has on us. And so we ask the question, well, if I'm supposed to care, what can we do? Like, what can I do? And there's lots of things that we can do, and you might want to keep that in mind when you go to vote, right? I had an interesting conversation with a guy that is connected to uh, this larger struggle and issue, and he told me that an expert in this field told him that when women go to a Planned Parenthood facility, they are not walking in there with philosophical questions. They're not walking in there uh, looking for theology. They're not asking somebody to interpret Psalm 139 for them so they can know whether or not this is okay to do. They are going into that facility because from their perspective, their life is over. This pregnancy, it's not a person, it's a problem. And this is a place that I hear can fix the problem. And so there you have Planned Parenthood ready to fix fix the problem. And this is why uh, holistic ministries like the Women's Center and like Crisis Pregnancy Centers are so wonderfully answering that question because for years the accusation against people like us who believe that life, that that child is, 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 uh, is a person, they would say, all you care about is the rights of the babies. We care about the rights of the women. And that was the accusation made against us. But you know, they don't make that so much anymore. You want to know why? Because now there are 2,200 crisis pregnancy centers all over this country who are caring not simply for the child, but also for the mom. And we've got those kind of ministries right here in our community, and we ought to be thankful for it, right? And to do what we can to support them, give money to Right to Life, give money to the Women's Center as they do a kind of asymmetrical battle regarding the value of life by caring for the women in crisis. Amen in there somewhere, maybe? I don't know. You all with me here? Okay. Now to answer this question, is there ever a time when abortion is morally justified? I believe the only time that that can be morally justified is to save the life of the mother. And these are challenging and ethical questions. But if we believe that the child in the womb is a person, then it is a life to be protected and to do what we can in order to protect it.
If you can't muster any interest or excitement in it in church, you're never going to go to the Women's Center banquet and you're probably not going to volunteer, right? So got to have it here. Let's talk about a related issue, euthanasia and suicide, okay? Euthanasia and suicide. Euthanasia, that might be a new term to you. You might think it's a, you know, a, a country over by China somewhere, you know? It sounds like Malaysia, euthanasia. But in reality, what euthanasia is, is a term that describes the, 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 the taking of a life once it has got to a point where it has a terminal disease or it has some painful uh, disease or is no longer worthwhile to society in its worst um, iteration, euthanasia. There are places in the world already that have, are practicing this. It's sometimes called mercy killing, okay? Mercy killing. Now, this is a slippery slope. I hope you see why. If there is somebody or a government agency or even a medical staff who have the rights to decide when I can take this life and this life and this life, and they can define it the way that they want. Where do we find these angels from heaven that drop from heaven who have absolute moral authority and goodness and make the perfect call in every respect? Who do we trust for that? And again, you go, the government. I hope you don't think that, okay? I don't trust me to make that decision. And suicide is, is a related issue in the sense that if I feel like I have the right to take my life, whose role am I assuming in the taking of my life? I am taking the role of God, right? So if I don't have a right to take your life, which is the sixth command, because your life is precious, it also means that I don't have a right to take my life because my, my life is is precious. I am myself an image bearer of God. And that is a sacred and dignified status. All right, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, he got the hard ones out there early and we're going to kind of coast in from here. Actually, let's talk about reproductive issues. Okay? And a reminder, this is the application of our exposition from last week. This whole message is trying to apply, what does it mean, thou shalt not murder? Let's talk about reproductive issues. And there is so much in this category to talk about. I'm only going to touch on the big ones. And particularly because modern technology and medicine creates all of these ethical dilemmas that 100 years ago, pastors didn't have to preach about and Christians didn't even have to think about. But we live in a different day now. So let me begin by talking about uh, birth control. Okay, let's talk about birth control. Behind this is a debate whether birth control is appropriate or ethical at all. And there are many people that say that it is not. This is the Roman Catholic position, as an example. Right? So if we... If we have a family that pulls up to visit the church in a school bus, we look at it, we say, oh, a Catholic family is visiting today, right? 
big families, and we're for big families, okay? There's nothing wrong at all with that. But most Protestants, I think, just sort of assume that it's okay, right? Oh, it's okay. Everybody I know is and all of that. Really? Is it always okay? Or is this something like a lot of things where it is why I do what I do? Is there a way to use birth control that is for very selfish reasons? Is there a way to use birth control that shows a low value of human life or a low value on children? Which, of course, is a very unbiblical motivation. Is there a way that you can use birth control wrongly, even though maybe ethically there is parameters that allow for it? Of course. Okay, of course. But to the birth control issue itself, I think, me now, I think that it is allowable for a married couple within moral parameters to use birth control. You say, what moral parameters are there? Let's think about this a moment. When do we believe that life begins? When do we believe that uh, personhood and image bearer begins? We believe it begins at conception. Okay? So therefore, birth control methods that don't allow conception to happen would therefore not be doing violence against an actual person. But birth control methods that impede a fertilized egg from growing would actually be doing violence against an image bearer of God. Are you tracking with me? So therefore, there are some that are ethical and there are some that are not. So, for example, the rhythm method, that's an easy one. Okay? Uh, That one... No, no fertilized egg is being, violence being done against it. What are known as barrier methods, condoms, diaphragms, things like that, again, no fertilized egg, no violence against an image bearer. But birth control methods that uh, don't allow the fertilized egg to implant and to be nourished are by implication, not allowing an image bearer to live. And this would include the IUD and the morning after pill, things like that. So you have to understand what is actually going on. Now, a third category for this is what is known as, or I'm going to call, others call, potentially abortive birth control. And this largely falls under the category of what is known as the pill. And there's like some 40 different uh, ways that that technology is used in birth control. But all of them uh, must be studied. And I want to just say this, before you assume that the pill is an ethical birth control method, you need to You need to look into it and not just say, well, everybody I know uses it, so therefore it must be okay. There are challenging questions about this. I would encourage you to read Randy Alcorn. Many of you maybe know his name. He's a trusted Christian writer. He wrote a brochure. This is a good resource called, Does the Birth Control Pill Cause Abortions? 
read that and at least study the issues and be aware of what that technology does. You say, well, why should I do that? I mean, come on, why should I care? Because human life is sacred. And we don't want to get to heaven and discover that through ignorance or through laziness, I was involved in doing violence against any image bearer of God, especially one uh, in the womb of a mother. Now, a few comments about another category. Okay, they just, they just keep, it's all easy here today, isn't it? In fact, I'm going to be glad when today is done. Uh, but a few comments about in vitro fertilization. And now we're on a subject that is so very tender to uh, couples that are wanting to have children and, or having more children, and they, they cannot. And we have many of these in our church, and I want to just say to you that our hearts are with you in this. The desire for children is holy and we would love to pray with you or whatever we can do to encourage you. And, uh, and, and so I just want you to know that. But what oftentimes happens with couples that are wanting children, not having, they turn to medicine, okay? Which we've got a good theology of medicine. Medicine's great. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But one of the processes that is used is in vitro fertilization, where essentially they take eggs from the mother, fertilize them, implant some of them with the hopes that one or more of them will live and will survive. But oftentimes, they fertilize way more eggs than they actually use. And so now you have eggs, fertilized eggs that are frozen, oftentimes are destroyed. What do we have to say about the ethics of freezing permanently or destroying little people. Well, again, applying the principle that all of human life is sacred, that means that all conceived little people ought to be given a chance to live and to stand against the practice of destroying conceived image bearers. Do you get that? Okay. It's a logical, ethical application of the sixth command. And it is grounded in a fundamental belief that all of human life is sacred, even if it's in a test tube. By the way, the sixth command is the basis for the inherent goodness of adoption. Do you realize that? It's one thing to say you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that, but one of the beautiful expressions of valuing the image of God, no matter where it is found, is when a family will welcome into their home and into their hearts a child that is not biologically from them, but now from adoption and love is their very own child. And that is a beautiful thing as well, isn't it? And we love to see that in our church. We have so many families that, uh, that are in adoption, have adopted are involved in uh, the caring of, of children. For example, mom is thrown into Lake County Jail. We have families in our church that take the children of those families temporarily. They don't know if it's going to be two weeks or two months or two years. But they love those children and they care for them. Why is that inherently good? Why is that ethically beautiful? Because human life is sacred. 
And it doesn't matter the color of the skin of the kid or how old the child is or anything else. When I love God, I love his image no matter where I find it. Okay? After the service, by the way, I had... I mean, this is, such, this is where this is so delicate. Last night I had, I had a woman come up to me uh, and, and her son had been murdered. And she told me how much the message meant to her. And then after the last service, I had a man come up to me. They've adopted, uh, they're in their 50s, and they're like still adopting kids. And uh, they're like the school bus family. They pull up, and they just got kids everywhere. And how much the message meant to him. And I will tell you, in his life, to see the love that they have for, for children, it is, it is so touch, touching to see that. It is an expression of the adopting love of God. It is a beautiful thing protecting life no matter where it is it's valuable and god's people will see it as valuable okay so that's the first big category protecting life let's go to the second one preserving life okay application of the sixth command preserving life and uh we're gonna go a little faster on these uh they're a little less controversial but i wonder if we see them as ethically mandated from god let's begin by talking about medicine and health and wellness. You know, we tend to think that Christianity, it's like all we care about is the soul, right? All we do is we care about getting people to heaven because that's the only thing that matters. Really? Is that how Jesus did his ministry? Did he come across the, uh, the blind man and say, you know what? Praise God, you'll get to see someday. You just hang in there. <laughs> or how about the hungry people on the hillside? Did he just say, get over it and die and go to heaven and you'll be fine. You're not hungry there. No. What did Jesus do? He healed the lame man. He healed the blind man. He healed the deaf man. He fed the 4,000. He fed the 5,000. Why? Because Jesus understood that image bearing is more than the soul. Now it is most certainly the soul, but it is more than the soul. When God made us, he made us He made us whole. This body is a part of the precious gift that God has given to me. And when I realize that it is a part of my image bearing, not that God has a body, but when he made us in his image, he gave us bodies that life and health and the caring for people in their physical suffering is inherently good. So when we talk about medicine, for example, why is it that whenever Christianity goes to Africa, goes to Asia, goes to wherever... Always along with it, there is a care and a concern for the condition of human suffering. So oftentimes there are doctors and nurses and medicine and it's Christian hospitals. How many, how many Christian hospitals are named Saint this and Saint that and, you know, uh, Methodist this and Presbyterian that and why, why is, why is, why are they all Christian names? Because Christianity values the whole person. And in compassion and love, seeing all of that as part of the image of God delights to alleviate the pain and the suffering that other fellow image bearers are experiencing. And so medicine, and those of you that are in the medical field, what you are doing in the caring of others, if done for proper motivation, is inherently good. Praise God for medical professionals, right? Apparently, you're all in wonderful health because nobody amen that. Ah, we don't need them. Move on. Yeah, and then you have an ache or a pain or blow out your knee playing basketball, and all of a sudden, you're like, I'm so thankful for these people. Okay? 
So praise God for our medical, our medical people. This command also contains the ethical basis for healthy lifestyles. Okay? Healthy lifestyles that care for our health and our own body. Now, I gave the teaser last week. I said, you know, the sixth command, it's about smoking cigarettes. But you've got to come back next week, right? And uh, so maybe some of you came back this week, either because you smoke cigarettes and you want to hear what I have to say about it, or you love it when preachers condemn people that smoke cigarettes. So you wanted to hear that as well. So you showed up here today. Um, neither of those is really what I intend to do here, so much as to help all of us understand that we have a responsibility to treasure every gift that God gives to us. And God has given you this body to live in. And he cares about it. That's one reason Jesus was resurrected. God has a plan for your body, a glorified version of it someday in eternity. We have bodies. They're a part of our salvation. And this is not ultimate, but I I do feel like it's important that Christians have a proper theology of care for our bodies, right? So to talk about cigarette smoking, which is, I think, an easy one because even those that smoke cigarettes acknowledge this is probably not good for me. And someday I'm going to wish that I I didn't do this, right? Uh, And so it's easy for people to pile on smoking things. And to say that that's bad. But then our favorite day of the week is Thursdays when uh, a dozen Dunkin' Donuts are on sale. And we sit in Dunkin' Donuts and we eat donut after donut condemning the people outside that are smoking. Don't they know that's bad for them? And if they had a proper theology, they wouldn't do it. Or maybe you've heard a lot of uh, overweight preachers condemn Smoking things. (laughs) See the duplicity of that. Better for us, I think, to look at all aspects of image bearing as precious gifts and to do what we can to preserve them and to care for them and to live intentionally as stewards of them. Now, I want to add this with this. If you are in bondage to any kind of obsessive habit that is destructive. Smoking whatever, cutting, you name it. I want you to know that here in this church, we are for you. And I'm not piling on here, but as God gives you grace even to struggle with making changes, I want you to know that we're cheering for you. We're not condemning you. We're just cheering for you. And we'll trust that God will do his good work in all of us. This also has something to say about carelessness with our lives. And I say this maybe most in mind, our teenagers, who all too often, you know, two guys are driving down the road and the one buddy says to the other, I bet you can't beat the train across the tracks. Right? And the guy says, you know what I got under the hood of this thing? Are you kidding? I can totally get over that track before that. I bet you can't. I, I, watch me. You know, and all of a sudden, here you have a child that mom and dad have nourished and loved and taken care of, prayed for, grandma and grandpa praying for, putting aside money for college, provided a room, fed them all these years. All of a sudden, this child now is willing to put all of that 
on the line of whether or not he can get across the tracks. That's stupid. Can I just say that? And all the parents of teenagers said, amen. Okay. It's stupid. Or like the video that I watched yesterday. I think these are guys from Europe. They climb these skyscrapers and these, you know, these huge towers and somehow they get through security and they walk on the edge, you know, like right on the edge of a hundred story building, walking on the edge or balancing on some kind of a little beam. If they fall, they die. And there, or, or they hang from the edge, like by one hand, he's hanging from the edge, like the outside of the Sears tower. And he's doing a selfie, you know, like this, look at me. What is that about? Right? That's somebody that's not valuing their life. And they're just foolishly putting it at risk. Your life is precious. Your life is valuable. Don't just carelessly put it at risk. Now, there are things that are more important than our life. And Paul would never have done what he did as a missionary if his life was the most important thing to him. But he said, you know what? My life means nothing to me compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So there are things that are more important. And aren't we glad that Jesus viewed there are more important things than his own life? That's another good place for an amen. Okay. Aren't we glad Jesus had more important things than his, than his life or we would all go to hell, right? So there are more important things, but your life is valuable. Take care of it. Don't waste it and don't be silly with it. All right, quickly now. Got to talk about this. Sixth command is the basis for why we should care about the poor and issues that relate to social justice. Let me read Psalm 72, 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious in their, is their blood in his sight. James says it this way, pure religion and undefiled is this that we look after widows in their distress and care for orphans. Now, why would James say the best kind of religion is when you care about vulnerable people and people that have nothing to offer you? Why is it? Because when I care for the orphan and I care for the widow, I know that I'm doing it for the right reason. There's no reciprocal blessing that I get from that. I am loving them because they are people. Because they are image bearers. Because they're a fellow humanity. I am caring for them. And Christianity, of course, calls us to that. That's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who's my neighbor? It is any fellow human being that I can help. Even if they're a different race than me. As the Samaritan points out. To love and to care for them. And to have compassion for their distress. This is good. I think about... The focus on human trafficking right now. Should Christians care about the sex uh, uh, trade? I think so. Okay, Why? Because that girl that was stolen from Ohio and now is in Thailand being bid on is the daughter of somebody and is an object of the affection of God in whose image she is made. And to do what we can to help and to assist 
is, of course, the Christian ethic. It is pleasing to God. God cares for the oppressed. He cares for the violated. He cares for the poor. So it's not just pulling the trigger, not pulling the trigger. I never murdered anybody. Did I, did I care? Did I love those who bear the image of God? Okay. Protect, preserve, finally, enjoy. Enjoy life. This certainly includes our own lives. Do we enjoy life? Do we enjoy living? One commentator called this, I think, a theology of cheerfulness. We ought to be cheerful. Now, this is not easy, right? Because life is hard, and it's through many dangers, toils, and snares that we're coming through this thing. It's hard. This world is broken. People say things. They discourage us. Lots of discouragement, isn't there? We all understand that. But behind all of that is the reality that I am alive. You, If you are here right now, you are alive. This day is a gift from God to you. You have a mind. You have a soul. You have vibrancy. You have self-awareness. You have a conscience. If you're a Christian, you have God. You have faith. You have Jesus. And to understand that this is a day to rejoice in and to make the most of flows out of an understanding that life is sacred, which is the sixth command. It also is the basis for finding joy in the joy of others and the seeking to improve their life. This, by the way, is why I said uh, uh, at the beginning, Pastor Gary Butler. Some of you like smirked at that. You thought John Wayne Gacy, Gary Butler. John Wayne Gacy, Gary Butler. What is the connection between those two? Here it is. Pastor Gary here at our, on our team is the guy that gives primary leadership to our counseling ministry. So he spends time helping marriages, helping families, helping parents, right? Putting things back together, bringing healing and forgiveness and all the rest. He leads our Celebrate Recovery, helping people get over their their, uh, destructive habits and their uh, hurts and all the rest. Seeing people put their lives back together. Is that a joy to Pastor Gary? If you talk to him, it is... It is one of the great joys of his life is to see other people's joy improving, deriving joy in the joy of others. In fact, we could, re, we could retitle him around here, pastor of the sixth commandment and its application. And maybe I will do that, actually. And finally, I want to mention evangelism. I want to mention evangelism. We can send money to the Women's Center. We can be all about our new Gary campus. We can uh, help our neighbor uh, scoop out the snow this afternoon from today's storm. We can be known as a genuinely nice person. But if I never tell that person the path to eternal joy that is found in Jesus... Am I actually loving them? Because if I was going to hell, you know what the most loving thing anybody could do for me would be? To tell me how I can have eternal life. And so often, you know, it's, it's easy in a sense to sort of live on the, 
loving the temporal needs of our fellow man and to not see the urgency of the eternal. As John Piper said, Christians care about all human suffering, especially eternal suffering. And to realize there is one gospel, one he that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. And they can have great bodies and all the food they need and, and have wonderful marriages and great retirement plans and they do the financial peace and they do the celebrate recovery and they're involved in this or that. But if when they die, they go to hell, have I loved them? Have I really cared for the biggest issue that they have, which is their relationship with God? It's the same issue that we have. Am I right with my creator or not? Are my sins being held against me or not? Have I come to believe in Jesus and receive salvation through him or not? Do I have eternal life? This is the issue. And so when we get that moment, that opportunity with the neighbor that we've scooped off their driveway or the um, coworker that we have giving them a lift somewhere, loving them. It's so easy to get lockjaw, doesn't it? Talk about the bears, talk about the weather, talk about whatever. But then when it comes to Jesus, belief, life, right? And here the sixth command calls us to love them in a gospel way. Aren't you glad somebody loved you in a gospel way? Aren't you glad somebody loved you enough to tell you about Christ? Their eternal happiness is at stake. Now, I maybe have raised more questions and answers in this kind of an ethics 101 message here today. But I've tried to give at least a framework through which we can look at this world around us and one more thing to say every breaking of the sixth command is another sin that jesus died for i don't want you to leave here today feeling uh, condemnation without hope did jesus die for the murderer yes Did Jesus die for the abortionist? Yes. Did Jesus die for the suicide? Yes. There is not a sin that Jesus did not die for. And I, for one, am glad that for every violation on the outward or in my heart of the sixth command towards my fellow human being, that Jesus bore the guilt on the cross. And so we end this message at the foot of the cross where humans must go. It has something to say. I think of the hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No 
other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Stand and sing the second with me. This is.